I put a couple questions here, I think. You want to display these? Go ahead. These are questions that hang in our minds. What does this mean? And what should I do? So I've thought about that, and I wanted to be faithful as a pastor to think deeply about that and to uh, maybe guide us in the right way. So prepared some thoughts as we begin our message today that really kind of help answer these questions. What is this thing that's happened in our world? What does it mean? And what's the significance of it? And what should we do? So most of us have big, colorful television sets in prominent places in our homes, and we, we carry advanced computers in our pockets. And at a time like this, that's a mixed blessing because all of us have seen with horror that evil acts against the evil acts against the people of Israel last week. And we, and we know that what the Bible says is true. Humans are capable of demonic evil. It's being streamed to the world. Demonic hatred for the Jews is on, a, it's on worldwide display again. And the scriptures repeatedly warn us that this would be the case all the way through to the end of the Bible. And you can read about it clearly. For instance, in Revelation 12, Satan hates Israel, inspires people to despise Israel. And in a fulfillment of scripture, Israel's been gathered to its rightful land, though most have not trusted Jesus as Messiah. And some people wonder, how do we know that Israel is the Jews' rightful land? It's like simple. God said that. said that clearly in, in uh, Genesis 12. And so if a, any human says, this is mine, when God says who it belongs to, then the human is wrong and God is right. Now, Israel has vowed to mete out justice to those who committed these atrocities. The vile terrorists are holding women and children as hostages. They're hiding behind other innocent women and children. And the suffering of the innocents in Israel and in Gaza is further grief to us and is a confirmation of what God said would happen. Around the world, Jews and Gentiles are taking sides and they're demonstrating in the streets. The whole world today is boiling over with hatred and with anger. Now, this could be the perfect atmosphere in our world for someone to rise up with a peaceful solution. The scriptures teach that one day the man of sin will rise up in supernatural power and he will broker peace initially between Israel and her Arab neighbors. Shortly after that, the man of sin, the Antichrist, will betray God's people, Israel. And we don't know if this is that or when that will happen, but we know that this is the exact atmosphere that would make the whole world vulnerable to that. And increasingly over the last few years, Jews have been gathering to pray on the Temple Mount. Maybe you noticed that. When we went to Israel and we went to the Temple Mount, our tour guide said, I'm going to have to gather your Bibles because if we take Bibles up there, we're going to get people really upset. And he literally gathered our Bibles and we couldn't go up there on the Temple Mount with our Bibles. But now, over the last few years, Jewish people first quietly and now with a lot more demonstrative zeal have been praying on the Temple Mount. And this angers the Arabs, the, the, especially the militant is Islam. <clears throat> There's a deep hatred for that. Jews would, you know this, they would love to rebuild a third temple. And if we understand the Bible right, this will happen someday because the man of sin will desecrate the temple, which isn't now currently standing. And when he breaks his promise to Israel, 
We who love the Lord and we who long for peace and who long for justice should be reminded by all of this of Jesus' return. Let me say this to you in a, in a popular way. There are people who, are, who all they do is they, they speculate about things to come. They don't even really work. They just horse around with speculation and sensationalism, and they're not terribly responsible people. But then on the other hand are people who also claim to be Christians who really don't spend much time at all thinking about Jesus' return. But then you have grandma. Like if you have a faithful grandma, she's not an expert in Bible prophecy. She just has the Holy Spirit living in her. And when she watches the news and things like this happen, what does your grandma say? Jesus is coming. And your grandma is right. I mean, if she's saying that. Jesus is coming. So the Bible clearly says we long for his return. And when we have a Bible that makes it very clear that a nation who wasn't even in the land, they were in the land as a nation, through all those years from 8070 to 1948, is now regathered to the land as the scriptures predict, and the focus of all the world attention is on the land of Israel, all you have to do is open your English Bible and you can see that's what the Bible says would happen. In other words, you're tracking with me, this should strengthen our confidence in the Bible and cause us to think for the Lord, about the Lord's return and long for the Lord's return. It should wean us from earth and, and it should cause us to have concern for our lost loved ones and our lost neighbors. It should cause us to have a desire to redouble our efforts for Christ as we recognize that things are happening as God said they would happen. Now, this should make us want to study our Bibles. This should make us want to be well-informed about what the Bible does say about end times. I know that some of you are thinking, I don't understand that end time stuff. And so I'm just going to say, I don't get it. And I'm going to leave it there. I want to suggest to you very graciously as your pastor, that would be wrong. And here's why. A big chunk of your Bible, for instance, like the book of Revelation, God made the effort to give a revelation to John on the Isle of Patmos for his people. Shouldn't we read it and try to understand it? Well, of course we should. If someone you love sends you a letter, you can't tell them, I didn't read it and I don't understand it. It might be, hey, you're going to have to explain part of this to me, but you're going to love them enough to figure it out. So, so I wrote it this way. When Jesus first came, think about this. Jesus expected that his disciples would understand the Old Testament references to his first coming. He expects his people to know what he's already said about his second coming. Now, we may not see every detail clearly until it gets closer, but we should study to be aware of what devout students of Scripture have written, even when they differ, and they do, so that when the time comes that we'll be ready and we'll be aware. There are things about Jesus' return that all genuine Christians agree upon, and there are areas where godly people with a high view of Scripture differ, but we should know what the major positions are so that we can clearly know what's happening when we get closer. So this is a good time for us to say, what have you been thinking about? And what has been occupying your heart? And what is it that you deeply care about? It's something to think about. In other words, devout believers should not leave large tracts of scripture unstudied and, or spend hours of time filling our heads with ske and schedules with things that really don't make a difference in eternity. Remember what we tell the children of Awana is still true. What does Awana stand for? 
you all know that it comes out of the Bible. Approved workers are not ashamed. Why? Because they study to show themselves approved unto God. Accurately understanding the Bible, rightly dividing the word of truth. In other words, it, 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 those who don't study the word of God. Now, I didn't say this. Paul said it should be ashamed. Should be ashamed. So you say, I don't understand it. Okay, fine. Do you long to understand it? Have you studied it? Do you, you say, well, people differ. Do you understand how they differ and why they differ? It, it would be worthwhile to take some of the time that you scroll on other things and, and ask some hard questions about the scriptures. So what is it we love? There's an easy way to tell. What do we talk about? What do we spend time on? What do we spend money on? What do we get excited about? What is it that makes you angry? These things betray the truth that hides deep in our souls. So when events in Israel spill out and they capture the attention of the whole world, it should be a reminder to us that God has promised to reward those who love his appearing, who love him at his appearing, when the love of many is growing cold, the scripture says. People who love God and love his appearing, they pray with fervency. Let me give you a little example. So we have a young man here today. He's, uh, his first Sunday is here. He's just got, his, got himself an apartment right down the street. He just walked in this week. Just walked in. Pretty new Christian, fired up. He came, he came to our men's breakfast yesterday. And this is a young man, 18 years old, who's really eager to follow the Lord. Now, that's interesting. Because when I said that Thursday night, he dropped in on Thursday. And when I mentioned that in our advisory council meeting on Thursday night, one of the praying ladies was lifting her hands and praise the Lord. You want to know why? Because the ladies that meet on Wednesday in that room, they specifically pray for all the dear souls that live on our street, that God would send them our way. And so when he answers those prayers, you know that you, if you live there and you're coming here, did you know that you are a special answer to prayer? And this young man, obviously a special answer to prayer. How exciting is that? Godly people do that. They love his appearing, so they pray with fervency. And people who love God, they love to fund good works. People who love God love to sow the seed of the truth, whatever they can, in every, any way they can figure out how to do it. And people who love God long to live lives that are holy, and they grieve when they sin. Now, we should elect honorable representatives, and we should try to pass laws that reflect the law of God. And we see evil intensify. We should rest deeply in Christ. Be at peace in him who holds everything together, but we should intensify our fidelity and obedience to him. So this is, this is the answer to the question, what should we do? Well, at the end of the day, we need to get up in the morning and go to work as representatives of Christ in a world where the love of many is growing cold. But we should never go out into the world without having a keen awareness that we have a calling, that we have a commission from Christ, that Christ sent us into the place where we go on Monday. We are children of the living God, and we are tasked to represent him to our world and make him known. So we don't just go off to work to make a living. We see our work as worship. We see our work as service to others. We see our work as a way to show God's love in a world of hate or a world of indifference. We see our work as a way to fund his cause and we see our work as a way to witness. We see our work as a mission field and our work as a place of simple obedience to God. Now, I had a problem this week. I had two messages on my mind. Now, that is a very dangerous thing when a pastor has two messages. Wouldn't you agree? Go ahead. You can agree. That's dangerous. I thought, what do I do? You know, do we cancel all the singing? 
That would be a very unpopular choice. Wouldn't do that. Uh, we go way into the afternoon. Well, my wife would beat me up for doing that. You know, she would, she would take a dim view of that. She wouldn't actually lay hands on me, but she would discourage that. Um, and, and all thinking people probably would. Here's the thing. I was thinking about this. I was thinking, faithful pastors probably ought to speak to this issue a bit because it's on our hearts. It's like being pumped into our living rooms all the time because we care about Israel and about the future and about people who suffer innocently, no matter who they are. We care, Christians, after all. And we also have been talking about life is hard and we're supposed to talk about part two of work. What's interesting was this. I thought about passages of Scripture Matter of fact, why don't you take your Bible and look in 1 Thessalonians. I talk about pa- passages, uh, uh, 2 Thessalonians, passages of Scripture that talk about the return of Christ. For instance, the Revelation is a large tract of Scripture that we preached all the way through. Hope you got to be in on that. It talks about the return of Christ. Um, the book of Daniel, we preached all the way through the book of Daniel. It talks about the return of Christ. But 2 Thessalonians is a tiny New Testament epistle that talks about the return of Christ. But here's how it works. Chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians kind of says to the people, hey, Jesus is going to come back. He's going to come back to, to gather the faithful and to visit those who've willfully rejected him with judgment and flaming fire. It's kind of direct. Jesus is coming back. And uh, the, chapter 2 says... Kind of like this, I heard you, people have been telling you you missed it. That's kind of what chapter 2 says. I heard people have been telling you you missed it, but you didn't miss it because the man of sin hasn't been revealed yet, and this great falling away hasn't happened yet, and you'll see these things happen, is what he's saying there. And so what he's saying is, you, the, the, Jesus is going to return, and he's going to return to reward believers and to judge those who've rejected him consistent teaching throughout the Bible, and you haven't missed it yet, so take heart, you haven't missed it yet. Matter of fact, just to read that, this is the language he uses, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come i.e., and you missed it. You haven't missed it, is what he's saying. But then, and I'm not teaching all of this thoroughly, I'm just referring to it. In chapter 3, he says, so here's what you should do. No, you haven't, yes, I am coming back. No, you haven't missed it. But guess what he says in chapter 3, which I think is fascinating based on the two messages that I'm preaching together today. He says what? What do you think he's going to say? Go to work. Exactly. You want to see it? It's exactly what he says. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. It's happened to you. And, and, he, and that we be delivered from wicked men and such. But then he says, now we command you, this is in verse 6, we command you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness, not according to the tradition that you receive from us. Like lazy people that won't work, you probably should give them a wide berth. People that want to speculate about the second coming, but they won't go to work, just stay away from them. You yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, 
nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Paul says it was, he was basically saying, when I came, it was only right that you guys pay me, but I refused pay and I earned my own pay just to be an example to you that Christians that are waiting for Jesus to come back should be occupying themselves with good things, they should be working. And it is not, verse nine, it's not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we couldn't give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, don't let him eat. We hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing what is good. Isn't that fascinating? So these two messages then, they are the same message. The answer to the question, Lord, the world is boiling over and it looks like your return is drawing near and they're persecuting Israel. What should we do? Well, we should do a lot of good things, whatever good things the Lord shows us, but we should get up on Monday morning and represent the Lord Jesus Christ in the place where we're sent. Now, to you that are retired, may I just say congratulations for a lifetime of hard work. Congratulations. We commend you for you that are retired. However, we don't let you off the hook. Uh, to you that you work in a different way, you know, you're not a laborer, but let's say what you do is not something that you get paid wages for, but you, you're occupied through the day. I want to include you in this message very carefully. I think it's appropriate. What I'm describing is whatever you, that God has led you to occupy yourself with during the daytime should fit in the categories we're talking about. And we started talking about this last week and we said, here's the way to keep from despair when it comes to work being hard because of the fall. See work the way God wants you to see it. So let's review. And we have a little um, uh, example here and I think we covered three things. And so first we see our work as under the Lord. This is last week. See your work as under the Lord. We showed you a significant number of passages. If you weren't here, you could go back and watch it if you wanted to. That show that our work should be done as if we're doing our work directly for Jesus himself. So that will put a spring in your step. Jesus is coming today. He's going to be at your school. You might want to be at your very best. Jesus is going to be at your factory today. You might not want to punch in late and be slothful at break time because Jesus is who you're doing this for. Second thing, we see our work as, hey, it's for the Lord. The second thing, we see our work as worship. It's an extension of that first thing. This is the, one of the ways that God wants us to worship him is in the way that we use our gifts in the world. And then the third thing then is we see our work as a way to love and serve other people. I won't re-preach all that. Let's just move to the fourth one. Here's another way to transform our hearts, give us hope instead of despair in a time in our, in our world when things are difficult, when things are dark and work is, gets hard or your circumstances at work are difficult. See your work as a way to be a servant and a giver. See your work as a way to uh, be a generous giver. Listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians. This is a beautiful passage in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 11. The point is, Paul, Paul writing here about giving, he says, the point is, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, but whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. You get it? He's talking about using sowing like giving. Everyone must give as he's decided in his heart, 
not reluctantly or under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. So, so Paul's saying, when you give to the Lord, give willingly out of your heart what you want to give. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound to every good work. For it is written, he is distributed freely, given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower, bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Did you track with what he was saying there? He says, if you decide that you're going to get involved in sowing or giving, and they're particularly talking about giving through the church to the needy here. But if you say, you see, here's a worthy cause, a missionary, a person that has a need, and you give, and God sees that you're engaged in giving, and he wants you to give more, he'll see to it that you have whatever you need to give more. And, and there are people in this room that will tell you that is true. And they will say it like this, you can't outgive. God, the more generous you are, the more you're able to be generous. Not that you won't necessarily, God might take you through, and he has us, maybe he has you too, taking you through lean times so that you can learn how to depend on him or so that he can correct something in your life or whatever he's doing. But God loves a cheerful giver, and he loves to give to those who he knows are going to give so that they can continue to give, and he can fund the, the ministry that they have. And, it's, it, and, and Jesus said it was recorded in, in Acts 20. Remember this? It's more blessed to give than to receive. They quoted Jesus, more blessed to give than receive. And I'm like, well, sometimes you think, well, I don't know about that. At Christmas, I like getting stuff. You know, I have a big wish list on Amazon. And, you know, kids, will, the kids will, they'll use my Amazon account to buy stuff for me off of my list, which I think is cool because I'm like, oh, I know what I'm getting and when it's coming. And it's kind of fun. I was like, oh, wow. And anyway, so it is fun to receive. I decided that I wanted to take a friend to Jamba Juice. You ever been there? It was like a, like a, a smoothie place in Chicago. And I'm like, oh, I don't get there very often. So I, I said to my friend and to his wife, hey, you should, after the conference, you should go with me. And have you ever been to Jamba Juice? And like, no, we haven't. I'll go, you got to go. I'll buy, you know. And so I'm just like, and it's kind of pricey, but I was like, it's okay. So we go over there and I'm like, hey, I want to buy, you know. So we go over there and we get in line and we look out and the prices are really high. And the big stuff is, you know how they price stuff? It's like expensive, real, like small is really expensive. And then medium is really expensive plus a quarter. And then really, really, and then large is really, really expensive, but just like 50 cents more. So what do you do? Well, this is how we can tell who the frugal people are. You buy the big one. That's what guys like me do. So I say to them, hey, get the big one. You don't want to, you know, you trust me, this is good. So they order the, I order the big one. They order the big one. They say, okay, that's like $29.95. I reach back in my wallet and I go, oh man. I go, my friend's here. I go, I forgot my wallet. Do, do you mind? Cover me on this, I'll, I'll get you back. Well, okay, that kind of ruined the evening because I was all excited about buying them this generous gift. And now I'm like, it wasn't actually, I mean, I didn't mind them paying, but, but it wasn't actually as much fun to receive as it would have been to give. And that was a really bad illustration. But the Bible says in Ephesians 3, 28, anyone who's been stealing should stop stealing. I like the directness of the Bible. Hey, if you're stealing right now, quit that. But here's what it says to follow that up. But work, do something useful with your hands so that you'll have something. It's like, so you can get a membership in the golf club. That's not what it says. It says, you know, because you're going to want to have something to give to those who are in need. Isn't it interesting? 
hey, don't steal. Go to work so that, you know, you can give to people who need stuff. That's the Christian way. Isn't that interesting? There's a young man out west who decided this way. He had, he had some physical challenge, serious physical challenges that threatened his life. When it, early in life, he began to follow the Lord, and he tried to be faithful to, to be generous and to work hard. And so he worked hard, and he was generous, and he saved some things, and he made some, and he made some wise purchases and wise investments. And a, a small company came open for sale, and it made horse feed, and he decided that it might be a good investment to try to buy this company. It had horse feed, and it also included, and this was a key thing he didn't understand at the time, but it also included a part of the business was a patent for slicing the horse feed small. So the oats, they would slice them small with this machine that had a U.S. patent that came as a part of the deal. And when he began to look at that, he thought, if we could slice this, we could actually market this as breakfast food. Nobody had ever done that before. He started to market this oats as breakfast food. He called it Quaker Oats. His name was Henry Parsons Kroll. I'll skip to the end of the story. When I went to Moody Bible Institute, the main hall, beautiful hall that's still there, that includes that famous Moody Arch, guess what they call it? You guessed it, Kroll Hall, because the money was donated by Henry Parsons Kroll, who made up his mind, whatever he did, if God blessed him, he was going to fund Christian ministries. And all over the country, he funded Christian ministries. I've been through that Moody Arch, and imagine thousands of young men and young women have been through the Moody Arch, out into the mission field, and every other godly Christian organization in the world funded by people like this who worked so that they could have something to give. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, I can't build a building and all that. I, I think we, well, we got to think about it like this. Imagine that you just give on your scale, like you witnessed and you, pray, you prayed at the restaurant, so just give a little extra tip. You, 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 you prayed with the waitress or you were kind to her. She saw that you, she knows your Christian came in on Sunday. It was like, be especially kind and forgiving and then give a little bit of extra. You can afford, if you can eat out, you can afford to give a little extra. Give a little extra as sowing into that. Find a kid that, that wants to go to camp and make sure you give a little bit to the, get the kid to camp or, or find, find a way to be generous and then you let God determine the scale of that. That's a lot of fun. Proverbs eleven twenty five says, A generous person will prosper, but he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. God will meet your needs if you're generous. I was speaking up in Canada. I got, I got invited to speak in Canada. I was kind of excited about that. Oh, that would be kind of neat. I can call myself an international speaker now. Um, and so these guys invited me. It was really humble. They were like cooking their own food, buffalo, bison, bear, raccoon. I mean, it was possum. It was a little weird. But anyway, and they didn't say anything about paying me or anything. And I said, yeah, I'll be there. They, the, one I think, the thing I noticed when they invited me was they go, you don't have to pay. <laughs> it was kind of a bad sign they were saying it that way. You don't have to pay. I'm like, well, I normally wouldn't pay if I was speaking. But anyway, you don't have to pay. I'm like, okay. And they said, and, and the guys are camping out, but we'll get you like a pop-up camper. And anyway, I got up in there, and it was, a, it was an awesome time. But when I left, they um, said thank you and, you know, shook my hand, patted me on the back, and I drove away, and it was a great time. But I'd funded my own, you know, trip. And I got back, I got a check, I think it was like for 
$115 or something. Well, you know, it covered some of my gas. It didn't really cover the depreciation on my car, but it kind of covered my gas. I'm like, that was great. It was a great weekend. I, I would do it again. They called me the next year. I couldn't go. And I said, well, you know, ask me again. I'll, I'll come up. But anyway, the next time they asked, I went up there. They did the same thing. But then they sent me a check and it was like so much I'm embarrassed to tell you. I guess I'm just not going to tell you. But it was really generous, really, really generous. So I was up at the lake and I was sitting there thinking, what should, I remember a guy told me one time, if you come into some money that you didn't expect to have, don't just go spend it. Um, ask God, what should I do with this? So I was sitting there praying that morning, and I said, Lord, what should I do with this? And I was thinking about what kind of iPad I wanted or, you know, just some extra things I needed, you know, like a bigger, faster computer. Um, anyway, the, uh, I was sitting there, and at the time, my son, Daniel, was a Bible college student. He had volunteered to be a youth pastor at a church that couldn't pay him, so he was going to be driving, spending gas money. And I thought, well, maybe I should save it, set it aside, help him get to that church, be a youth pastor at that church. He came home that weekend. His car broke down, and we said, well, you got to get that fixed. We took it to the shop. It was a lot of money. And when the guy says, well, you can come pick it up, and it's so much money, he looked at me, and he goes, he's a college student, and he doesn't have any money. And I wouldn't normally have had the money. And he goes, oh, I'm not sure what to do. And I go, I know what to do because God gave me the money. I just didn't know why. And he said, they're crying. And I said, they're crying. I just says, well, Danny, whenever you get in that car and whenever you turn that key, I want you to remember the men up in Canada eating bear and moose and elk and raccoon and possum and all. Think about those guys. That's where the money came from. Isn't that sweet? You think about that. That whole thing about like being in God's kingdom and funding things and giving and letting God take care of you and seeing what happens. It's just a, the, the Bible says there's just a sweetness in that. The Deuteronomy 8, 18 says, always remember that it is the Lord, your God, who gives you the ability to create wealth. We have a hobby lobby in our town. You should frequent it. Don't go there today. That was a joke. They're not open on Sundays. Like, if you're really a Christian, you would have known that already. Yeah. And why don't we have a Chick-fil-A? Like, we must be under God's judgment, you know, in our town. So anyway, they got a Hobby Lobby. That guy, Steve Green, not the singer guy, but the guy who owns Hobby Lobby, he started in Oklahoma with a little bead store, and he sold beads to hippies. But then he, he gave from what he had, and God prospered him, and he has funded, I mean, literally bought campuses for colleges all over America. I mean, millions of dollars the Hobby Lobby guy has given to God's work because he's a devout believer. That's the big scale, but we can enjoy the same kind of thing on a, on a small scale. Acts 20, 35 says, Paul said this uh, to the Ephesian elders. Remember this? I have been a constant example of how you can help the poor by working hard and remembering the words of the Lord Jesus Christ that it's more blessed to give than receive. This can change the way we look at work. Why do you work? Well, because you can make money and you can... Obviously, meet your basic needs, but then you can, if you're careful, you can have some to give to stuff that you believe in. And this is one of the reasons we work. Number five, see your work as witness. This will change the way you look at things. See your work as, a, as an opportunity to witness. I once worked for a guy. I was thinking about him last night. I think it was uh, Arnold Clendenin in Troy, Ohio, a Christian guy. And, and I drove one of his little uh, lunch trucks. The guys at the factory called him the roach coach, but he didn't call him that. They were really nice, clean, and he let me drive one of those and sell sandwiches off the back of his truck. And I was zealous, so I said to him one day, I said, you got a little place here on the back of your truck. I, and he was a devout Christian. He was a solid Christian guy. And I said to him, I, I want to put tracks in there. And he says, well, Ken, here's what I want you to do. 
I want you to show up on time every day. I want you to deliver the sandwiches on time. I want the sandwiches the, to be good and the coffee to be hot. I want you to serve with a smile. And I want, that's the way I want you to witness. I don't want tracks on my truck. Now, I thought at the time, well, he's not really a devout Christian like I am. That wasn't true. No, he understood this principle. And that is there's something very, very powerful about a Christian doing his work well because it's a way to witness. This is what the scripture says in many places. Like, for instance, in 1 Thessalonians 4.11, uh, aspire to lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. Work with your hands as I commanded you. In a minute, we'll read verse 12 there because it basically says you, this will make you a witness. 2 Thessalonians 3:11 and 12 says, we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but busybodies. And now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. 1 Timothy 6:1. Let as many bond servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor so that the name of God and his doctrine will not be blasphemed. You see what I'm doing with these passages? We're t- we're, this, is, <laughs> this is like carpet bombing preaching, you know, like hitting you with a lot of ordinance here. That's probably a bad figure. These, these, I'm sharing a lot of truth with you. That's good. So like, like we're dropping lots of truth on you. 1 Timothy 6, 1, let as many as bondservants as are under the yoke count their masters worthy of all honor, so the name of God, his doctrine, won't be blasphemed. Titus 2, 9 and 10, exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine. And the message uh, paraphrase says, guide slaves into being loyal workers and bonus, a bonus to their masters, not talking back, not petty thievery, their good character will shine through their actions and add luster to the teaching about their Savior, Jesus. Can you imagine the horror of being in indentured servitude or slavery? And then serving with a, with a, as unto the Lord? That would be like, what is going on here? Why is this person that's being oppressed behaving in such a way? In the context, again, in 2 Thessalonians, the second coming, make it, this is 2 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12, make your ambition to lead a quiet life, mind your own business, work with your hands, just as we told you, so your daily life will win the respect of outsiders, so you'll not be dependent on anybody. Like if you're a young man, one thing that will make you outstanding young man in our time is just find a job somewhere and work with your hands, go to work, learn how to work with your hands. I know what you're probably thinking is like, well, I don't really want to work with my hands all my life. I want to do something that's like easier that people will pay me for. It's like, well, the Bible says, study to lead a quiet life, go work with your hands. Now, some people, what God's going to do is he's going to send them into a place where they're, 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 their work is, is communication or, or their work is knowledge and information. That's, that's legitimate. But a wise thing is just to begin by going, give me a job to do. Like with me, it was everything. But like in college, it was the guy who gets the dishes off the table at two o'clock in the morning and takes them in the back room and scrapes them and washes them and puts them away and then does it again and again and again until he's longing for the return of Christ. That was me in the middle. I'm not joking. That was true. Especially when you're under pressure, our work is validated in the details 2 Corinthians 6, 4, again in the message that the work, our work is validated in the details or it's not validated, validated in the details. People are watching us stay at our post alertly, unswervingly, in hard times, in tough times, in bad times. 
Anyway, I could go on and on about that. I'll tell you one other thing. I was, in a, I was working through the night at Kroger's when I was younger, and the summer before I got married, and what made it difficult, Kroger was a good company, and the work was good company, good, good work, but the people I worked with were lewd, just lewd, and I wasn't prepared for it. So here I am, Baptist preacher's kid that's like pretty much sheltered from this kind of thing. I'd been to a public high school, so I'd heard a lot of stuff, but I mean, these guys were like a special version of lewdness, and and then on top of that, I had sleep deprivation because it was third shift work, which no human being ought ever to have to do. And, uh, and I, there I was now, and I was just overwhelmed with how dark that was. I, I worked at a factory where the guys knew that I was in college, and so they would do things to kind of mildly persecute you. They not persecute you, but like they would shoot you with paint, or they had a spot welder, and if you walked by, they would accidentally hit shoot the welds so that they would burn your shirt. It wasn't, it wasn't like the end of the world, but it did hurt and it was humiliating and they would act like it was a mistake and, and that stuff would happen all summer. And during those times, I remember thinking, Lord, why is it that you are having me do this? Like, why? And I think one of the reasons was you say you're trained to be a pastor, you know? So here you are among people who are really actually lost people. And I want you to be among them, because if you can be a testimony among lewd people, then you can be a testimony anywhere. I remember thinking about that a lot. Well, here, here's the sixth one. Work, see your work as a way to grow in the Lord. See your work as an agent in your sanctification. And when I was working at that Union City Body Company, and those guys would do that to me, I remember driving home. There was a long drive home, and I was hot, and I was tired, and I was sweaty, and I was kind of humiliated, and... I was driving home trying to process. I'm a young man, so I'm trying to process among other men, you know. I was trying to process my whole manhood and what was my, and, I, and it was hard for me to, I was thinking about that. And this is what I felt like the Lord told me. And that is, bear up under that and endure that. Because one day, you will be able to preach to people and you will be able to identify with them in the things that they're going through. And so, in other words, I feel like God said, I want you to be there because it's a part of your education. And when I got home, I talked to my dad. My dad confirmed that. He goes, no. He said, Kenny, you're right. He says, wherever you go, God is going to put you in circumstances you don't like. And if you run from them, they're going to be, on, and this is the way my dad always said it, if you run away, they're going to be on the back steps whittling wherever you go. They're going to be waiting for you like, hello, Ken. So you might as well learn your lesson where you are. So God has you there to learn a lesson. Some of you are in difficult work situations. And maybe you should leave and go somewhere else under people who are honorable and just. And if you can do that, <clears throat> that's just smart. That's good thinking. But some of you, that's not going to be possible right now. And circumstances that you're in are difficult. Maybe you always have a little bit of that. Certainly the people that work with me do. And they have to say, well, you know, here's what I'm going to, I'm going to learn in this situation. The difficulties or the weaknesses of my superiors, I'm going to suffer because of that. But I'm also going to let that be an agent in my growth and my sanctification. And so I hope I've helped you in this. Don't run from your problems, but run to the Lord with your problems. Because God's more concerned for your character than he really is for your career. He's more interested in who you become than what you produce. And God uses your work and your workplace to develop your character, and that's valuable. This was the way Joseph, you could tell he kind of started out a little sketchy. 
And he ended up quite a prince for God, quite a, quite a leader for God. In Psalm 105, verse 19, it says about him, this is Joseph, until the time comes to fulfill his word, the Lord tested Joseph's character. The most important thing you bring home from your job really isn't your paycheck, but it's your character and your testimony. And here's the seventh and the final thing. See your work as a qualification for promotion. Now, it may be that the Lord will not promote you because he has you where he wants you to be, and he wants you just to work quietly in a simple way, and, and that's, the, that's the level where you are and you should stay. That's just true sometimes. But there are other times when God has something else for you, and he has maybe a, a different thing or, or maybe even a bigger thing, and maybe you're, you have a mix of ambition in there. Here's the thing that's been helpful to me. I want the Lord to determine that. I want the Lord to determine the scale of my ministry to people by just being faithful and doing a good job. Proverbs 18, 16 says, a man's gift makes a room for him and brings him before great men. And Proverbs 22, 29 says, see a man who's diligent in his business, he will stand before kings. If God wants to promote you or prosper your business or cause you to make a lot of money, he can do that. Your job is just to be faithful and obedient in what he tells you to do and let him, but he may be measuring you for another job right now. He may be, and this is f- frequently true, he may be taking you through things that you don't think you need, but you need, so he can get ready, for you. he's getting you ready for something greater that he wants to do with you. This is often the way he, God works. So it's really a great idea when you're going through some kind of pressure to say, God, what is it you're trying to teach me right now? Because I am all ears, God. I want to learn. Listen to people in your life. Listen to your superiors. Listen to your coworkers. Listen to your wife, to your husband. Listen to your kids and humble yourself and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and read your Bible. We're all in this process. So ask God, what are you teaching me right now? Sometimes God will put you under pressure because it's the only way he can really get you to pay attention. And it's really an expression of his deep love for you, that you are his child. And he's going to keep you under the thumb of pressure. This is how God often works. And so God may be measuring you for a greater opportunity. I heard once about a young boy that went to his grandfather. Grandfather was a wealthy millionaire. And he said, Grandpa, how did our family get its money? Grandpa says, well, I'm glad you asked me, son. Because years ago, I was penniless. And I borrowed a penny or said something like this. And I bought a pencil for a penny. And I sold it for two. And then I bought more pencils. And then I sold those pencils. He says, so over and over again, I would buy pencils and I would sell them for more than I paid for them. And a a couple years later, your aunt died and she left us a million dollars. So that's how that happened. Now, everybody here isn't going to have the good fortune of an aunt passing away just at the right time and giving you all the money that you need. So most of us, that's not the plan. But although you might be surprised who God puts in your life to gift you, when God knows that you can handle a gift. You might be shocked. God may be measuring you for a greater opportunity. And God may be molding you to tune your job into a greater opportunity. Bloom where you're planted. Anyway, does anybody here doubt I could go on and on about this? What I want to do is encourage you this week. I know I've said a lot today. I want to encourage you not to despair and not to be heavy-hearted. Christians in a time like this should obviously be serious We should be sober. We should be merciful. We should be prayerful. We should weigh our words and have a heart for God. But we should also long for Jesus' return. And we should get up on Monday morning 
And we should go faithfully back to work on the job where God has called us. Because when we see our work, the way God sees our work, it changes everything and makes us filled with hope and not with despair. I like you.